All right, so turn your Bibles to Mark chapter 6, verse 1. Mark 6, verse 1. I don't know if we have, I think we might be out of Bibles, so we're not going to be able to pass those out today. So Mark 6, verse 1, uh, and uh, the verses should be behind me on the screen. Now, uh, here's where we're at. We have, uh, we've been in Mark now for, I think, about uh, 13, 14, 15 weeks, somewhere kind of in there. It's kind of all blurred together. Um, but we've talked about how the Bible is written, and, and specifically the book of Mark is written. It's a narrative, guys. Like, you have to read this together, and if you just take it in little chunks, you'll miss the greater meaning of what's going on. So we always try and recap a little bit to bring us into what we'll preach on today, okay? So last week, we talked about how Jesus is back at it, healing people again, and he heals two people. He heals a bleeding woman, and then he heals a little girl who's the daughter of Jairus, who is a religious leader. And what we learn in this story, is that as, as Mark intentionally puts these two things together, is that it does not matter who you are or what you've done, Jesus wants to heal you. He wants to bring you in. He wants to care for you. He wants to save you. And he shows us this because the woman had no reason to think that Jesus would heal her. That she was a woman, which back then, big problem, okay? Kind of pushed to the side, not loved, marginalized. Then she was also unclean because she had bled for 12 years. This was not someone who, was sh- who should feel free to run to Jesus. Then you had Jairus, on the other hand, who was a religious leader, had a lot of power within the synagogue, had a lot of friends in that community, was well-respected amongst the Jewish people. It would seem he should be okay to go to Jesus. And what we find in the story is that Jesus tells Jairus to look at the faith of the woman to show him what does it mean to come to him. Okay, what does it mean to have faith in God? And so we found out ultimately at the end of the day that it is nothing that we do, it is everything that Jesus does that saves us. And this is a very good thing for us. Now, we've spent the last, I would say probably six or seven weeks, what Mark has done intentionally, I believe, is paint this very beautiful, glorious picture of Jesus that he is a guy you should follow, you should want to be on his team, he's going to save you, he's going to heal you, it's going to be amazing. What he's going to do today, and I think it's intentional, is say, wait a minute, before you decide to jump in, you better count the cost. I think he's going to say, hey, we're impulsive people, you tend to just buy really quick, okay? You tend to just kind of say, okay, man, I've read some, that sounds good, so I'm in without really counting the cost. Uh, a group of us here, we have a friend, and I won't say their names, uh, but they read a book called Radical uh, by David Platt. It's a great book, uh, but it's very emotionally charged. And it's like, listen, you, you need to go, you need to sell everything, you need to give up your life, you need to go to the world. Okay. And so they did. They, they literally sold everything they owned. I mean, just laid everything, put it all on Craigslist, sold everything they had, and said, we're moving to China. Okay? We're just going to do it. Read the book, we're moving to China. And so they sell everything they got, they get two tickets to China, zero plan, they get to China, and they lasted six days, okay? They lasted six days in China before they decided, we don't like it here, we're going back, okay? They didn't count the cost to what this looks like to follow Jesus. Now, they follow Jesus here, and so let me be clear, I'm not saying them not staying means they don't love Jesus. I'm saying they didn't count the cost and what it meant for them to be in China long term. And what I think Mark might be fearful of is us just looking at all of these stories and say, yeah, well, I want healing, so I guess I'll go to Jesus. Oh, yeah, no, I want, I want him to, to free me of all of the brokenness in my life. I want to feel joyful again. I want to feel free. I want to feel love. I want to feel grace and hope and kindness. I want all of those things. And so if you're telling me Jesus is offering it, then I'm in. And so I think Mark is going to say, hey, l- l- let me share a few stories about how this, 
this wasn't always perfect. About how this isn't always easy and how it's not just all about the blessing and the good stuff, but there's actually some cost to following Jesus, okay? And so today we're going to learn what it means to be his disciple. And I think for the most part, and I'm sure there's, there's always some, there's some non-Christians here, and thank you for being here. Welcome. We love having you. Uh, but for the rest of us here and we, that, that love Jesus and, are, and consider ourselves Christians, disciples of Christ, I want you guys to, to, in many ways, look through this list and say, man, it, do I believe that? Do I want that? Does that mark my life? And if it doesn't, then you're going to need to maybe change some things. You're at least going to need to have a conversation with yourself about what does it mean for this to be a little bit different in my life than it currently is. Because if that's what discipleship is, and here's where I'm at, there's a disconnect. And so I hope we all leave challenged. As I was prepping this, I was like, gosh, I, I maybe get half of these myself. And, I, and I'm a super Christian, right? So, um, <laughs> just kidding. Maybe. And so I began to look at my own life and say, God, this doesn't add up. And I got to, man, Lord, if I, if I trust, if I call you Lord here, then this, this doesn't add up, right? And, and I hope we all have that moment. So here's what I think. I think some people here will say that it's, it's just not worth it. I think if we're honest with ourselves, I think some people will leave today and say, okay, if that's the calling, if those, if those are the things that it means to be his follower, to be his disciple, it's just not worth it, okay? And I hope, I hope, I hope that'll change. But I think there's then a group of us that will say, you know, it's worth it, but I'm still going to go do my own thing. Right? There's some who say, no, no, no. Cognitively, I'd say, no, that, it is worth it. It is worth following Christ. But I, I still want to do my own thing. And then I think there will be hopefully a large group of us that will say, you know what, I'm not perfect at this, but that's where I want to be. It is worth it, and I will go. I'm going to strive to look more like Christ, conform to his image as I was originally intended. Okay, that's, that's my hope for us. So I'm going to give us 10 W-D-I-M-T-B-A-D-O-Js, which we all know stands for 10, what does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus is, okay? And so here we go, verse 1. He went away from there and came to his hometown. His disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue. And many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, and the brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown and among his relatives in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them, which I always find that to be just a hilarious comment. He he did no mighty work other than heal people. Yeah. (laughs) Kind of of makes me feel terrible about what I do day to day. Um, Verse 6, and he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about among the villages teaching. So here's what happened. Jesus returned to his hometown of Nazareth, and here's what you would expect to happen. How many people have ever watched the show The Voice? Yes? Great show. Now, this is the second time I've referenced this in like a month, so I might have a problem, okay? Uh, but in The Voice, what happens is it's towards the end. They get to send the contestants back to their hometowns. And all of these people from the hometowns have been following their guy, right? So if we had a guy from Flagstaff that was on The Voice, you better believe it. The whole city would be watching that guy, rooting for that guy. And so these guys go back, and literally they show up, and they're usually from tiny towns, and they get there, and there's parades for them. I mean, they have floats, and the mayor gives them keys to everything, right? I mean, just there's this women flying through the air. I mean, it's just unbelievable uh, just how much love is, is showered on 
these people because they've done something great elsewhere and now they've come home. And I honestly, I think the expectation after hearing that Jesus has brought people back from the dead, right, has healed the paralyzed, has allowed, allowed the blind to see, has set people free from demons, you would think that possibly, just possibly, he would come home and at least there'd be a welcome party, right? That, that, that there'd be something. Maybe his family would get together and say, hey, we threw this big dinner. All your friends are here. But none of that happens. None of that happens. Jesus returns back to his hometown and is met with nothing but pushback. Continued questioning about who he is, why he's doing this, and what he's about. Very confusing to me because it would seem like it should be the other direction. What are they missing? And I, and I think that they're missing what it means to truly follow Jesus. They're just acquaintances at this point. They have misconceptions about who he is. They have certain ideas about what religion should look like, and it doesn't look like what he's doing. It doesn't add up for them, and so they push him away. And so we begin to already see this issue with Christ, and it's, it's quite saddening. Now, regardless, he's asked to teach, and so he ends up in the synagogue as a rabbi. He's teaching to the people, and he's telling them all this stuff, and he, and he goes, he says, listen, there's a prophet is not without, without honor, and he goes on and on, and we look to the Old Testament, and we begin to think this is just true throughout history. The constant, when you look at these old prophets, you look at these guys that we talk about a lot in church, you look at, you look at Noah, you look at Abraham, Joseph, Jeremiah, all these guys, these heroes of the Old Testament, you say, man, they were always seem to be rejected, oftentimes by the closest people in their lives. Now, a further, a further look I was thinking about, you might think some of it makes sense. I mean, poor Noah, he had to go and what? Tell the world that it was ending and that they were the only ones that were going to live. I'd be upset too, right? That, that doesn't sound good. And you had Abraham and he, he was running around trying to circumcise people, right? That's, that's unfortunate, okay? <laughs> you had Joseph and he had that weird colored coat, you know? And then you had Jeremiah who was known as the crying prophet and no one wants to be around someone who's crying all the time, Okay? <laughs> And so these poor guys were given tough tasks. And we forward now to Jesus, and the reality is, is what he's preaching is revolutionary. That he has turned everything on its head, and we don't need not look any farther back than the story we just talked about last week. That that was revolutionary, that Jesus would look to the faith of a woman to show, how, show a man what it looks like to follow him. He is turning the story on its head and saying, it's not about you any longer. It's about me and what I've done, what I'm going to go and do. Pay attention to this. This is what it means to follow me. It's not the legalistic, ritualistic things of the old days. It is a new covenant with me. Follow me. Do what I tell you to do. And so if this is true, if this is the type of relationship we're supposed to have with him, I wonder if we don't reject Jesus a little bit ourselves. Because I wonder, when I thought about my own life, I don't seem to add up to all the things that I'm called to just in this one text. And so am I the family member that's saying, you know what, Jesus, I don't fully get it. And I'd like to go and do my own thing a little bit here. Do I begin to push him away a little bit just by the way my life is lived? And so here we go. Our first, what does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus, number one, is that you and your message might not be popular. Okay. You and your message might not be popular, Okay. And Jesus says this, that if you associate with him, people are going to hate you. And now, I wonder how often the message that we preach is hated. And it was somewhat convicting me to think that maybe I maybe don't preach the gospel as, 
as proudly and as strongly as I think I do. Because there tends to be very little offense, because maybe I cloud it in jokes and humor or something like that, but it, but it often seems like it's just very palatable, and I wonder if that's just on me. Am I, am I watering down the preaching of sin and, and the gospel and how Christ is the only thing and that you cannot do it yourself? And I don't think so, but I wonder as I look around about why sometimes my message isn't, it doesn't seem all that offensive. And I wonder that for us. Because Jesus says that if we're, if we're with him, people are gonna, they're not going to be fans. Now, I think if we look around our culture, maybe it's moving that direction. Maybe we lived in, in kind of this Christendom for so long that it, was, it kind of carried over even to our generation today. And so we live in this reality where it's, it's acceptable and it makes sense. But I, I do think we're headed out of this. And the question will be, which is, what does it mean to be a disciple number two? Is that in the midst of opposition, will you still preach about Jesus? In the midst of people pushing back against you and saying, you know what? Yeah, m- maybe that used to be okay 10 years ago, but you can't say that now. And, and if that's true, I just wonder, what are you going to do? What am I going to do? When, when it really comes up on our front doorstep and people begin to really challenge you, hey, what do you believe? Oh, you believe this? Are we going to cower and run the other direction? Are we going to step forward and say, well, that's just the gospel? That's just Jesus. And go back to number one and understand that your message will probably be offensive and not everyone's going to love you for it. Okay, probably those two things. Now, um, my... Uh, my family, for the longest time, uh, I became a Christian, and I was 18 years old. I'm 31 now. And uh, when I first got saved, I started getting involved with, uh, with Campus Crusade for Christ, which is uh, kind of an organization uh, across college campuses across the United States. And I started getting involved, and I go home, and I start telling my parents about Jesus and all this stuff. And I said, he's great, and he's done this, and it's amazing. You should become a Christian. Let's go to church. And then uh, I'm so amped, and I remember I sit down with my dad, and I tell him this story, and we're going through some different things that we're doing as a ministry at, at San Diego State University, and he says, you know, Vince, it sounds like you're in a cult. And I said, wow, what's that? You know, I, you know, and so he begins to tell me why he thinks it's this, that, and the other. And I remember for the longest time this, this constant pushback from my parents in thinking, yeah, but you're going to get over that. This is just kind of a phase for you. The church thing, it's, yeah, I get it, and, and you kind of got sucked in for a little bit, but eventually you'll see through it. And I remember just having these conversations about, yeah, well, you know, this is, this is, this is wrong, and da-da-da, and just this pushback that I received from my family. And I, I remember, what does that look like? And for a long time, I just was like, all right, well then, I guess I won't talk to you about God anymore. And then it was some years later that I finally realized, and I think I was convicted probably by a text like this to, said, to say to myself, no, this is just because people don't like it. I think that just means I'm supposed to preach louder. Not more annoying, okay, for some of you, right, uh, but louder. To live it louder and to say it louder. The beauty and the grace of the cross of Christ. Okay. Now, if we are going to be obedient, why? Okay, two or two things. One is uh, obedience is just commanded by God. John 14 tells us that it is he who has my commands and obeys me that loves me. Okay? It is he who, obey, who has my commands and obeys me. He is the one that loves me. And so obedience is a call from the Bible, a mandate. Do what Jesus tells you to do. But the second reason I think why for obedience why in the midst of opposition we should continue to preach is that I think it conforms us to look more like Christ. 
It makes us look more like Jesus when you have to preach to opposition. It's the same thing. So I, in high school, I played, uh, I played high school football and, uh, and loved it. It was fantastic. And I played uh, offensive line, okay? And, uh, and I was a guard. And I remember I get called up, and, and I'm playing now kind of with the varsity team just in practices. I never got in the field. I wasn't that good. And uh, not that year. I was amazing later. But, um, <laughs> but I remember sophomore year, they say, okay, we're going to do one-on-ones and they wanted the young call-ups, the sophomores, to call out one of the senior players to take on one-on-one, okay? Now, you had your pick of the litter, okay? And so, uh, it's, okay, this would be like, I'm going to take Hannah as opposed to Randy, right? I would look and be like, I'm going to take Hannah because Hannah weighs 18 pounds, right? And so, um, or muscular Randy, who's fit and runs all the time, right? So the, but here were my choices, where all of these guys in front of me, and the biggest, baddest dude on the team was Nathan Goodson, okay? Nathan Goodson. This guy, just to give you, I mean, this dude was Goliath. I'm not kidding. Six foot five, 275 pounds, and, and wasn't like ripped. He was just one muscle, like the whole body was just, I don't know how he moved. It was insane. He went on to play for USC, okay? Starting defensive end. This guy was massive. Uh, Anyway, so I said, I want Nathan Goodson. Call out Nathan Goodson. And so what happens the first time? First time, knocks me down, right? Second time, knocks me down. Third time, knocks me down. But what do you, let me ask you, what do you think happened on the eighth time? He knocked me down. That's right. Yeah. He still knocked me down every single time, right? Every single time, that whole, that whole practice. But here's what I learned in the midst of it. I learned how to get better at leverage. I learned better footwork. I learned better how to not get beaten up by him as much, okay? The reality is, is that opposition makes us better. Opposition makes us better. And I think, honestly, when we have to go against pushback and continue to preach and live the gospel in a broken world that says, that message is not good and I don't want any part of it, when you have to continue to live like that, you jump into Christ's shoes and you look more like him as you go. And so, in some ways, I tremendously welcome opposition for the church in America. Because maybe, just maybe, we'll have to start looking like Jesus. Okay. Maybe, just maybe, we'll have to live out what it means to actually be his disciple. Be convicted by that and continue to go on. All right, so let's go. Verse 7, continuing on. And he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and to put on two tunics. And he said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you and will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. And so he gathers them and he's going to send them out two by two and he gives them direct instructions. And we'll look at those in just a second. Okay? But what it means to be a disciple number three you are a sent person. Okay, every single person in this room, you are a sent person if you belong to Christ's family. That it's not just the 12 that are getting this. That everyone in here is sent. That doesn't mean necessarily that you're, like, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to pair you up in twos today and make you go around Flagstaff with only sandals. Okay, but Jesus is going to say, every single one of you is sent to the people and the places that you work, reside, and play. That everywhere you go, listen, it it doesn't matter. Whether you're walking out here and you're going to walk on the sidewalk, you're going to go grab lunch, you are a sent 
person commissioned by God with the gospel of Jesus Christ. When you go to work on Monday morning and you get there at 9 a.m. and you clock in and you go and you sit next to whoever is there and everything you do, you are a disciple and follower of Jesus who has been presented with the ministry of reconciliation. That is what you do. When you leave work and you go home and you get to go to the movies and just enjoy a movie, you are an ambassador for Jesus equipped with the gospel of Christ. Everywhere you go, you are sent to that place. And I think we need to take on that mentality. Because it's almost like we end up places on accident. Like, oh, cool, I'm at lunch. Right? No, Jesus sent you to that place in that time. He's sovereign that you'd be his witness in every single thing you do. Okay. What does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus? Number four, you are to, you are to depend on him alone. Okay? So, so he gives these guys, so listen, don't, don't take any of that stuff. Don't take an extra tunic. Don't, you, don't, you don't need a staff. You don't need that stuff. And he's not saying that you should get rid of all your possessions here. Okay? He's not just saying rid yourself of everything of this world. He's saying do not allow the comforts of this world to supersede your dependence on me. Don't allow the things of this world to say, okay, well, I guess I'll go and serve Jesus because I still have this much money in my bank account. Don't, don't just say, okay, well, I'm going to be in. I'll be his follower. I'll be his disciple because I have all of this security that exists over here. He's saying, listen, if I tell you to get rid of everything you got, you better get rid of everything you got. Because I am your only capability. Nothing that you're equipped with, no physical thing given to you, makes you more capable than you are without it if you don't have Jesus. Jesus is your capability. He's all of our, listen, if we want to be sent, if we want to be disciples, if we want to continue to preach in the midst of opposition, then Jesus must always be everything to us, every capability for us. Because when we put it on ourselves, we just blow it. We're not strong enough. We're not smart enough. We're not wise enough. We make terrible decisions. We're usually mean to each other. I mean, like, it's just, we need Jesus in everything we do, okay, in everything we do. So let's keep going. We got to move. Verse 12. So they went out and proclaimed with that people should repent. And they cast out many demons, anointed with oil, many who were sick, and healed them. King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said, he is Elijah. And others said, he is a prophet, like the one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. And so the disciples go out, they do what Jesus tells them to do, okay, and it works. Okay, shocker, right? Equipped with God's power, they go out and they do what Christ has called them to do, and it works. So what does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus number five? The world will talk and wonder at your good works. Okay, so you've got Herod and his guys, and they're all together, and they're talking about this movement, this uprising, these people going. They begin to have this, what is going on here? Who is this? Why is this? The world should look to the church and marvel at our good works. Right, that, that our church, that Redemption Church in Flagstaff, Arizona, that, that, that people outside our church, that the city should look to what we're doing here in loving and blessing our neighbor and say, that's amazing. Maybe I don't get it, I don't understand it, but man, I respect it. That the city should be able, not just our church, should look to the church in the city of Flagstaff, the church in the state of Arizona, and say, you know what, I, I don't get it, but I gotta respect it, because they're doing profound and amazing things amongst the people here. That they are truly seeking the common good in the same way that God dispenses his common grace. 
and I wonder, is that happening? Oh, do we all, I mean, listen, a lot of you guys, you're, some of you are visiting, but a lot of you, you're part of this church, you're here. Do we feel as a community that the city looks to us and says, man, they're just marveling at the good works that happen? I hope so, but I don't know. I hope so. Are, are they looking to us and saying, yeah, that, there's just amazing things. I want a couple stories here. I'm going to try and be quick, but uh, there, there was a... Um, there's this pa- Pastor Justin Marshall from Redemption Gilbert. He runs uh, kind of our, the children's and students' ministries down there. Tremendous guy. Anyway, he's going through an adoption process right now. And he decided, instead of wanting to go through uh, a Christian adoption agency, which we, we kind of help head up at Redemption called AZ-127, he, uh, he wanted to go through kind of a secular organization, just kind of be salt and light uh, in that area. And so he goes into this, no- uh, this, uh, this secular non-pro- nonprofit uh, Geez, nonprofit organization uh, that, that is working to help with adoption in the state of Arizona. And he begins to get in there, and he is assigned a trainer. Him and a group of other people, they all have one trainer, and this trainer is this guy, Ricky. Okay? Ricky begins to share. He's, he's sharing his story, and Ricky says, Hey, you know, my husband and I, we have adopted three, three kids ourselves. Okay? And then another woman trainer comes in and says, well, well, me and my wife, we have adopted another two kids. And they begin to train and say why this has happened and how this has gone. Okay? Now, Justin begins to know, the, gets to know these people and shares stories, lives life, gets to know, gets trained and all this stuff. They're sitting in a meeting, I kid you not, two weeks ago, and they're all going through a training. And there's questions that are posed to these two homosexual couples that are up front. Okay? And they say, and these questions were just like, hey, what do we do about crisis management? What do we do in conflict resolution? What do we do with this, this, and this? And there was a bunch of questions, and every single time, you know what they said? Well, we don't have anything for that, but if you want help in that, and you really should, you know where you need to go? You need to go to Redemption Church. He said, there is not a better place, there is no one else in the state of Arizona that is training people in these things other than Redemption Church. And so what you had was two homosexual couples who are not Christian, right, that are saying, okay, what you need to do is you need to go look at what the church is doing because they're doing it right. Amen. And that is a beautiful thing, that the world would look to what the church is doing and say, wow, I'm, uh, you know what, I don't buy into everything, but that's, that's incredible. They should marvel at our good works. Just yesterday or Friday, rather, there was a huge anti-Islam rally in Phoenix. Many of you guys probably saw that on the news, where they were, uh, there's a huge biker gang. There's supposed to be a thousand guys there. I don't know how many of them showing up, guys and gals. And, and, and they were going to show up and protest, anti-is- or protest Islam and, and yada, yada, yada. And it was just this thing filled with hate, and it was terrible. So Jim Mullins, who was just up here preaching a few weeks ago, got together this rally called the Love Your Neighbor Rally. And instead invited thousands of people, and I don't know how many showed up, to all wear blue shirts and hold signs that say, Jesus loves you and love your neighbor as yourself, and all these different verses from Scripture, to stand in the gap between the people who were spewing hate and our Muslim brothers. Now, with the full understanding that, yeah, we disagree with the Islamic community on significant things theologically. We, we do not worship the same Savior. Okay, let's be very clear about that. But we are called to love our neighbor regardless. And so it was tremendous that these people would stand in the gap between those who would try and do harm and spit hate and our Muslim human brothers. And what was amazing is that all of these news stations, including, I don't know if you ever read anything from Vice, but Vice is just anti-Jesus any chance they can get. And they wrote an article yesterday and they interviewed Jim 
and they pretty much talked about how amazing it was that the church rallied together to support people and, and, uh, and support peace in the midst of opposition. And so what you saw again was the secular culture looking at the church and saying, wow, and that should be happening all over the place. And so is it happening for you individually? Is it happening for us together? What does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus? Number six, it says your life should also have people asking about Jesus. So not just are they talking about the works, but they're saying, who's doing this? Who's the guy behind the scenes that's giving the power to these guys to go out and cast demons and set people free? How is this happening? Your lives, people should look to you and they should think about Jesus. They should see your good works and not just stop there and say, well, you're great. They should say, you know what? That work's amazing, but who's the person giving you power? Where's Jesus in your life? Who's the guy behind the scenes? And I ask myself this question. How many people look to what I do in the community and do at our church and do and loving my family and say, man, who's the guy behind the scenes? Is is, is there some guy that's giving him power? Because this seems different. The world should look to you and wonder about your association with Jesus and have questions about who he is. This the other night for Memorial Day, Verity and I went to, uh, to we took Finley over to Cracker Barrel because we're American, okay? And uh, so we're just enjoying a lot of fried unhealthy food, a lot of butter. And, uh, and there it is. Finley is sitting in his baby seat and just being Finley, which is if, amazing. And uh, if you don't know who he is, you're new. He's, he's nine months, and so every nine-month-old is just adorable. And so he's sitting in his chair, and what happens is all of these people just are staring at him, enamored with him, because he's, you know, making sounds, and he's doing stuff and waving. Like, his new wave is amazing. He can't, he waves like this. Like, like he's like, and so people wave, he's like, it's just, it's brilliant. I love it. And so he's waving at people. People find it adorable. And here's what happens. People come to us after looking at the way he behaves, and they say, wow, you're doing such a phenomenal, de- phenomenal job being parents. Well, that's amazing. Like, what are you guys doing? It's so incredible. And so here's what I found is that people look to my son and then they make a judgment call on me. They, they, they look at Finley and they say, man, that, that means something for his parents. And I'm telling you guys, people look at your life and look at your life and look at your life and say, what does that say about Jesus. They look at the lives you live and they begin to say, what does that mean about their Father in heaven? They know you're a Christian. They say, what does that mean for Jesus? And that is a heavy responsibility. I feel it as a parent and I feel it as a Christian that when people look at me, they should wonder about Christ. And God help me, I hope it looks good. And I hope it looks good for all of us as we seek to be a witness to our city. Let's keep going. Verse 17. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had, said, had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death, but she could not. For Herod feared John, knowing he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him glad. So quick recap of the story. Herod marries his brother's wife. John says, you shouldn't do that. Herodias, who is Herod's wife, says, I don't like him. We should kill him. Herod says, no, I kind of like him. So that's where we're at. What does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus? Number seven, live a life of integrity and conviction. Jesus himself will refer to John the Baptist as the greatest man to ever live. (laughs) He's the greatest guy that's ever lived. And so we look back at John's life 
And I honestly, you say, what it says, a righteous man. Why did this man, Herod, who had every reason to hate him, all of a sudden like him? John the Baptist was telling him everything he was doing was wrong and sinful and God hated it. And yet for some reason, he still liked him. So it should be with us that we should live lives full of integrity, conviction, and righteousness. That when someone, again, looks at your life, they may not agree with it. In fact, they may get a little upset the fact that you're calling them out in things that are brokenness and that will ultimately not be good for them. But they'll come back and say, you know what, but I, I can't hold this against you. Because you live a life of conviction and integrity and one that seems to point me only to good things, not to mention the way you love our city and love your neighbor and you seem to have this great relationship with this guy, Jesus, whom your life emulates to a T. God, I just hope that this, I hope this would describe me. I hope this would describe you. I hope this would describe us as a church. Are we these type of disciples? Let's wrap up. Last little passage here. Verse 21, but an opportunity came when Herod on his birthday gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, ask me for whatever you wish and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half of my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, for what should I ask? And she said, the head of John the Baptist. And she came in and immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. Quick recap, so they have this party. Herodias' daughter comes in, begins to dance, okay? Herod, enamored with this, okay, says, anything you want, it's yours. So the daughter runs to her mom and says, well, what do we want? We already know Herodias had this thing against John the Baptist. She says, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go back. I want you to tell Herod that I want him to go and I want him to kill John the Baptist, the man that Jesus referred to as the greatest man that's ever lived. And I want you to cut off his head, put it on a platter. Wow. Right? I mean, there, there is not a greater need for CPS. I mean, it's just what type of situation where this was the thing that was asked? Where this was the thing that would ask and so what does it mean to be a disciple? Number eight, this may end badly. Okay. This could certainly end badly. Let me read verse 27 through 30. Immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on the platter and gave it to the girl. And the girl gave it to her mother. When the disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in the tomb. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all they had done and taught this could end badly now i I don't think that if you decide hey no i'm in like this is i call myself a christian this is what it means to be a disciple this is the type of life that jesus calls me to i'm not saying if you say no i believe it and i want to do it that this is going to mean that you're going to have your head on a platter but it could certainly end badly it could end in ways where you do lose everything that you have it could be, man, we, we have stuff coming down the pipe when we start talking to different people where who knows how, I mean, can we still be a church? I mean, 10 years from now, are we going to still be able to be a church based on some of the stuff that's trying to get passed? Maybe, maybe, maybe I lose my job, maybe you lose yours. Maybe you have to give up certain things. And, and man, may, what if it's your life? 
And, and I know that just seems so crazy and far gone, but man, we only need to look, what, what 8,000 miles east of us, okay? We, we don't got to go all that far, 10,000 miles east of us to see where this stuff is just happening. There are people who hate God, that hate Jesus, that love evil. And this may end badly. You know, we've lived in such a society and a culture here. Where, man, yeah, Christendom, we, we, we're, we're the Christian nation. And I don't think we ever really were, but we're certainly not moving that direction, I'll tell you that. And so with that being true, if this could end badly, is this the family you want to be part of? Is this the type of community you want to be in? And I'm talking God's community, his kingdom. Do you want to follow Jesus? Do you want to be his disciple? Because this could potentially be part of it. And we need to count the cost of following Jesus. Something happened in the early church. The church was exploding, blowing up. People were, were just radical type faith. Right? Selling, I mean, I remember, think of Ananias and Sapphira. They sold everything they had and only gave half and then God killed them. Right? I mean, it was sold out. Now they were lying and deceptions, a whole bunch of that story. But you just kind of saw what was expected of the early church and it grew like wildfire. And then something happened in the early 4th century. Something happened in the early 4th century where this man named Constantine takes over the throne, becomes a Christian himself, and decrees that everyone in the Roman Empire must also be Christian now. And if you're not a Christian, then you will be, well, there's a lot of different penalties, but one of them could have been death. Okay. And so here's what happened in an instant. Christianity in that moment went from a sold out, I will lay my life down, I will lay everything at the foot of the cross because of your glory and grace, because I know my eternal destination, I will give it all to you, I will fully follow. It went from that, this beautiful, just fire spreading thing across the Middle East, and it became something that was mandatory. And it became something that was watered down. And it became something that was forced. And it became something that was expected. And when anything becomes that way, it loses all its power. And so what I wonder today is maybe it would be a little beneficial for us to experience a little bit of opposition. And really begin to see where do we line up. Did we just do this Christian thing because it was expected of us? Did we just do the Christian thing because it was what was normal? It's what everyone around us was doing. Did we just do the Christian thing because it was easier and better and we wanted the blessing? Or do we do the Christian thing because Jesus Christ, our Savior, lived the life we could not live, perfect to the T, and died the death that each of us deserved to die on a cross some 2,000 years ago? Is it because of that? Is it because that he rose on the third day, conquering death, promising then for us new life, eternity, and grace and power to go and do the same? Is that why you follow Jesus? And if it's not, you have options today. And it's to say, I believe it, but I don't want it. Or, I believe it, or I don't believe it, sorry, I'm out. Or I believe it and I want in fully. I'm going to, and, and Lord knows we are going to blow this thing and we're going to try and we're going to stumble and we're going to fall and we're going to have to get back up and try again. But that is the grace of the cross and of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That we fight to be disciples of Jesus. We battle even within our own souls to be disciples of Jesus. Because this is true.
And so I ask us today, and, and sorry, what it means, disciple 9 and 10, was that he rose from the, you know, he, he died on the cross, rose from the dead. Those are true for us, okay? In case you, you list people, we're wondering where 9 and 10 went, okay? Is this true for you today? And, and I'm asking you, and I don't know how often we, we really just, to really triage your life and your heart and say, am I there? Is this what I want? Because I think if it is, and I think if we all got on that page, and not just in this church, but across the church in northern Arizona, man, I, I, just, I just can't wait to hear from those outside to say, wow, look at the stuff that they're doing. Look, look, at, all, look at all of those orphans that needed adoption that no longer need it because they're in good homes with people that love them. What if they look to the church and all of a sudden, all the kids who are struggling in education and trying to get through school and move on, what if, what if all of a sudden the church said, you know what, well, that, we're going to take care of that too. We're going to go in and we're going to tutor every single kid in this city that needs it. What does that mean? What does it look for us to adopt a whole school? And that's something we might be doing. So I'm a little plug. Uh, what does that mean for every church to just start going into the schools and caring for these kids, especially in the underprivileged communities where they don't have the gifts and the privileges that many of us have? What would it look like if we solved problem after problem after problem? Because the reality is, is that there's probably, and I don't know the exact stat, at least 10,000 Christians in the city of Flagstaff, and I think we can be doing better. But I don't want this to be an emotional thing. Hear me. I don't want you to leave like, yeah, we're going to do it. I want you to leave truly thinking about the cross of Jesus Christ and truly think about what it means to be his follower. And if you're in, let's be in together. And let's just see God do amazing things in and through our church and the church across the state of Arizona. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for weeks like this where I, I feel like I'm just the whole time preaching to myself. God, where you're just... You know, as, as words even come out, you're just saying, hey man, what about you? And so Lord, I, I do pray, I do pray for clarity for myself and for everyone here that we be able to see our lives clear. We get distracted by a lot of things. We be able to see ourselves clearly. We be able to understand what we've said we believe clearly. God, I pray this isn't the type of message that causes everyone to leave and say, I don't want you, Jesus. I pray rather that it's the type of message that looks at what we've studied for, for 13 weeks in the Gospel of Mark about this Savior who against all odds and against all pressure and against all, what are you doing? You shouldn't be doing that. Why are you hanging out with these people? Against all of that says, no, I, I, I love you. God, thank you that you, you do love us. God, and you proved it. You need not prove it again. You don't have to do anything else, but God, you proved it when you went to the cross and died. God, taking the sin and the penalty and the shame and putting that on your souls and giving us your righteousness. God, what a tremendous gift of love, God. And then you didn't stop there, God. You defeated death and that we would live new lives today. And so, God, I am hopeful for myself. I'm hopeful for our church. I'm hopeful for the people here today that, God, that if we say that we are your family, that we are in that, God, you would provide everything necessary, every strength, every grace, 
and every goodness to us, Lord, every provision, God, that we could do this as well as we can. So God, bless us as we triage our hearts right now and speak loud, Holy Spirit. Convict us of your goodness and your greatness in our lives, that God, we would respond with faithfulness, obedience, and love to our neighbor and to this world, and most certainly to you. Thank you, Lord. In your name we pray. Amen.